If you live in South Alabama, it's hard to drive very far without crossing a river. Rivers are pretty incredible. They're a part of creation. They're one of the great blessings that God has given us. As long as history has been being written, God has given us rivers to use. And we've used them. We've transported goods up and down rivers. We've fished and eaten out of rivers. We've built uh, homes. We've built cities on rivers. Without the Nile, there is no Egypt. Without the Mississippi River, there is new, no New Orleans. And without the Tom Bigby and the Mobile River, there is no Mobile, Alabama. Rivers are just a part of the fabric of who we are. I grew up on a river, a muddy little river called the Escataba River. The, the locals called it the Dog River. I grew up fishing and swinging off of rope swings and swimming and having a blast on the river. All the bridges I remember as a kid were crossing rivers. If you live in Thomasville, Alabama, you know all about uh, the Alabama River that's not far from you at all. Uh, if you live in Mobile, Alabama, you know all about the Tom Bigby and the Mobile River flowing down into the Delta and into Mobile Bay. If you live in Spanish Ford, Daphne, or Fairhope on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay, you know all about Sticks River, you know about Magnolia River, and you know about this beautiful river I'm standing on right now, Fish River. As a kid, one of my relatives had a place on Fish River, and I remember thinking it was one of the most beautiful places as we would drive across Mobile Bay down through Daphne and Fairhope and down to Fish River. In fact, there's a lot of history connected to rivers. The very spot I'm standing on right now, right here on Fish River, is extremely historic. In the early 1800s, Andrew Jackson himself with his troops crossed right where I'm standing. They crossed this river, they came to this very spot and continued on across Alabama to New Orleans where they would fight one of the most historic battles ever fought against the British and Andrew Jackson won the battle. Not only is our history connected to rivers, but if you look in the Bible, the Bible is loaded with rivers. In fact, Genesis begins with great rivers in the garden and then you have the great river of life and revelation. And in between those bookends of Genesis and Revelation, rivers are found throughout the Bible. Moses is plucked out of the Nile and rescued uh, from his demise as a baby. Uh, David picks up pebbles to take down the giant out of a stream. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. And then you find some of Jesus' greatest illustrations are about rivers. So what we're going to do during the river series is we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about rivers and what those rivers in the Bible, both metaphorical and literal, have to say to us. So I invite you now, roll up your pant legs, step into the muddy waters, maybe get you a kayak, crank up the motor on the boat. Let's take a ride. Let's take a journey for the next few weeks through the rivers of the Bible because I think there are some incredible lessons for us to learn. The first example of a river that we're going to explore during the river series is found in John chapter 7. If you have your Bibles or your devices, you can turn to John chapter 7 now. Now let me give you the context. Whenever you study the Bible, you want to really know what's going on. So today we're going to look at a very famous statement from Jesus himself where he talked about rivers. And what we need to know to get all of the goodness out of this incredible passage is we need to know what's going on. And what was going on when Jesus makes the statement that we're going to study today 
what was going on was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there were three major feasts that people were involved in in the Jewish tradition during Jesus' day, and they were the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Josephus, who was a historian and an expert during that time, wrote in ancient times that the Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular of all of the feasts. It was an incredible, joyous event. What they were celebrating was two things. They would celebrate the yearly harvest of olives okay, and grapes. These are two things that were delicacies. Uh, there were other feasts that would also celebrate grains being brought in, but let's be honest. Grain's good, bread's good, but it's kind of boring, right? But grapes and olives, now that's good stuff. So the Feast of Tabernacles had a flair to it. It also was a celebration of God's provision for the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness. This was a joyous event. It lasted for seven days. And here's what would happen. If you lived in Jerusalem, you would build these little uh, compartments, these little huts, if you will, called tabernacles. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, little booths. And what you would do is you would build it either, either on top of your roof because roofs were flat or in your courtyard. That's if you lived in Jerusalem. If you lived outside of Jerusalem and you were able, you were expected to come to Jerusalem for this feast. And what they would do is they would come and they would take branches, just like the one that I have right here, and they would build these little huts, these little tabernacles, these little booths, if you will, and they would live in them. So people would build their own little booth, and this wasn't hard work, it was fun, it was joyous. And they would live in that little booth all week long, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone did this. There was music, there was food, there was dancing. It was a huge celebration. Not only that, but there was incredible symbolism to this because at the end of the week, the priest would take these big golden pitchers and they would go to the pools of Siloam and they would get water as all of these thousands of people watched this incredible event. And those priests would bring that water all the way up to the altar. And with people looking on, they would pour that water on the altar, uh, symbolic of God's grace and His blessings on their lives, and also a show, a signal, a sign to God that they were committed to Him, that they would continue to follow Him and trust Him because of His sovereignty and His faithfulness. This was an incredible event. It happened every single year. And this is what was going on when Jesus makes the famous statement He's going to make today about rivers. But not only was the Feast of Tabernacles going on, there was also something else. And we're going to talk about that next. So if you have your Bibles and devices, turn with me to the book of John chapter 7. And we're just going to begin to read and unpack what was going on when Jesus made an incredible statement about rivers. John chapter 7 verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now that's something we all need to understand. This was a time in Jesus' ministry when the Jews now had had enough of him and the powers that be were ready to kill Jesus. They wanted to take him out, but it was not his time yet as we are going to learn. Jesus was in complete control of the timeline of his life. Look what it says next. It says, verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. That's the feast that we're talking about today. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. 
Did you know that Jesus had brothers? They were his half-brothers because Jesus had a human mother, Mary, uh, but his father was his heavenly father. So they were his half-brothers. But they did not at this point believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They needed more proof. Now we know later on, after the resurrection, Jesus' brother James will become a believer in him and write the book of James in the Bible. Also, his brother Jude will become a follower of Jesus after the resurrection, believing he's not only the Messiah, but God, and he will pen a book in the New Testament. But at this point in the story, his brothers still do not believe that he is who he says he is. Verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So at this point, Jesus knows that if he goes to the feast, it could be very dangerous. The Jews are going to be there. It's in Jerusalem. This could be really, really bad. So Jesus, at this point, does not want to go. His brothers are pushing him to go. Verse 9, When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast. Now what this means is, is Jesus, we would assume through prayer and listening to his father, decided that he would go, but not openly, but as it were, in secret. So Jesus didn't make an announcement as a rabbi that he was going. He secretly went to the Feast of Tabernacles. Then the Jews sought him at the feast. They heard that he was there. And they said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning Jesus. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. When it says fear of the Jews, this isn't talking about the entire nation of the Jews. It's talking about those who wanted to kill Jesus. That is uh, the emphasis here. So at this point, this is a loaded moment. This is a very tense time. It reminds me of the times we're living in right now. It's very tense. It seems like we're living on a razor edge, like we're, like we're standing on a powder keg all the time in our culture right now. Lots of anger, lots of confusion. That was happening around Jesus. They didn't know if he was the Messiah or not. People were mad. People wanted to have him killed. Others believed in him. This was a very tense moment that Jesus is stepping into. Look at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? They'd never heard anyone teach like this. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now what most believe Jesus is referencing here is when he healed a paralytic on the Sabbath. That incited the Jews and they wanted to use that to kill him. They were so angry about that. So here at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus steps into the temple and begins to teach. 
and they're coming at him. They're arguing with him. And he points out, I did one work that made you guys so angry. Most theologians believe that that was the healing of a paralytic on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is telling them here is that they don't know who he is. They're saying that he is wrong and he is coming right back at them and pointing out that they are the ones who are actually wrong. Uh, this is pretty amazing. Look at verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that he is truly the Christ? However, we know there where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So the people are confused. Their leaders are acting strange because some of them want to kill Jesus, some don't. Yet here he is teaching in the temple and no one has arrested him yet. Verse 28, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. And I've not yet come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? So in these verses, 28 through 30, what is happening here is that Jesus is basically really offending the people. He's teaching the truth, and it's the same truth that is offensive today. And what is that? That the only way to eternal life, the only way to God is through Jesus. That's what Jesus is telling these Jews who have kept the feast and kept the Sabbath and kept the rules. He's telling them that none of that will get them to heaven without believing in the Son of God. He's telling them that He knows who God is. He knows them, but they do not. And that unless they go through Him, they cannot know God. And he says the same thing today. And very similarly, we are offended. People hate the message of Christ if they don't believe in him because it is a message that is offensive. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Don't miss that. Now added to the tension of the moment at the biggest and most popular feast called the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus is teaching in the temple and everyone finds out he's there and they're mad and they're arguing with him. And now the Pharisees send officers. They had great power. They send their policemen, if you will, to go and arrest Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I will go to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So the people are now confused. They're wondering where he's headed. What is he talking about? And Jesus is letting them know that pretty soon he's going to die. He's going to resurrect from the dead. He's going to be on the earth for a little while, and then he's going into heaven to be with his father. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So now you have the moment built up. You have all this tension. You have all this anger. You have officers who have come to get him. They have come to arrest him. And the Feast of the Tabernacles is going on. It's been going on for days now. There's all of this going on. If you can imagine the scene in Jerusalem. And here's what happens next. Verse 37. On the last day, 
that great day of the feast. So now we're on the seventh day of the feast, the last great day. This would have been the day that the priest went with the golden pitchers and brought the waters of Siloam up to the altar. So everyone's paying attention and everyone's watching what's going to happen. And on that great day, in the middle of all of this, with those priests getting ready to take those pitchers and everyone's attention and everyone's quiet, Jesus stood and cried out. Can you imagine how awkward this moment was? Jesus stands in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of this important moment, and interrupts it. And the Bible uses specific language here when it says he cried out. Jesus cried out. And what did he say? And here it is. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And here Jesus uses the powerful picture of a river to teach us an incredible lesson. So as we look at this incredible passage, this famous statement from Jesus, now you see the power of it. In the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus interrupts one of the greatest moments on the last big day. He interrupts it. He gets everyone's attention. He cries out with a loud voice. And He says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and I will give him this, this quenching water, this thirst-quenching water that will change his life. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And as we begin to look at this, I want to talk about three different parts of what Jesus said that we need to understand today. And the first one is, if anyone thirsts. If anyone thirsts, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, we know that he's not talking about physical thirst. How many of you have ever been really thirsty? Have you ever gone to a restaurant, and eating really salty food and you were just so thirsty or have you ever been at a maybe a ball practice where you were getting ready for a game and you forgot to bring a water bottle and you were just so thirsty you you almost become desperate your body begins to want something to drink well Jesus is certainly using the idea here but it's not the same thing he's not talking about physical thirst what Jesus is telling us here is that we all have an inner need our spiritual life that part of us that makes us who we really are, that we can be thirsty. So what you need to understand is the first thing that is required for you to be able to drink of this water that Jesus offers that will change your life is you have to be thirsty. Now here's the problem. Many of you are thirsty, but you don't realize it or you won't admit it. See, that is what is required is you must admit you are in need. You must admit, I need more. And don't you know that? Like, don't we all know that we need more than what this life can offer? I mean, this life is great and houses and money and jobs and, and food and drink and all those things are good things, but they're not, they're not ultimately the best thing. And don't we all know from our human experience that we can make all the money in the world and we can build the biggest, finest houses. We can have two or three of them in different locations. We can have one in, uh, where we're doing life and one at the beach or one down at the bay or one at the river. and. And, and we can have all of the greatest clothing and latest fashion. And we can have the house decked out. And we can have the bank accounts full and the retirement full. And don't we all know as humans that every one of those steps on the ladder that we step up to, there's just another one out there. The carrot seems to continue to move. The goalposts continue to shift. Don't we all know that we just can't get enough to satisfy us ultimately? The rich young ruler that came to Jesus in the New Testament knew this. He had everything and, 
even felt like he had kept the law pretty well. Still wasn't enough. He was still looking for something. Uh, U2, one of the greatest bands of all time, one of their greatest songs. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think that's true for all of us. We look and we look and we look and we search and we search and we get and we buy and we purchase and we experience and it leaves us thirsty. And why is that? Well, that's what Jesus was saying. Jesus stood in the middle of this famous feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, where everyone was kind of putting on the air that life was great and look how fun and joyous we are and God is great. And, and see, what we learn from the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament is that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these feasts, including the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, the very thing that the Feast of Tabernacles symbolized was the very thing Jesus made reality. And Jesus is saying that the only requirement for you to have Him, to have that thing that you are so thirsty for, is for you to admit that you need Him. If anyone is thirsty, understand this too, Jesus was talking not just to people who liked Him. Jesus said this to His enemies. Standing right in front of Him is a group of officers that came to arrest Him, to have Him killed and executed. And He offers them the very thing that they're so thirsty for. People in the crowd that just had been arguing with him, that hated him at this point, Jesus offers them true life and salvation. Isn't it amazing? See, at the, at the end, on this very day of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the traditions would be that the people, after the, the priest would pour that water on the altar, they would sing a verse of Scripture from the book of Isaiah that would talk about the rivers, the water of God, being the salvation of God. And that's exactly what Jesus was offering them. He was offering them a drink of water that could change their lives forever if anyone is thirsty. So the question is, when are you going to drink of the only well that never runs dry? When are you going to take a sip of the only water that can actually quench your thirst? If anyone, Jesus is offering this to all of us. If anyone is thirsty, Yes, no matter how bad you've messed up. Yes, no matter how bad you've blown it. Yes, no matter how many times you've turned him away, you've pushed him away, you've gone and, and taken of other things that you thought could satisfy you instead of Jesus, no matter what your story has been, Jesus stands before you today and says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. So today, my question is, are you thirsty? So one thing we learn about being thirsty from Jesus here is that, first of all, you have to admit that you're thirsty if anyone thirsts. But secondly, one thing we learn here is that Jesus is teaching us that our souls, that part of us that makes us who we really are but is invisible, but we know that it's there, our soul, who we really are, it can be thirsty. Just like your physical body can get thirsty when you eat something salty, when you've worked out, when you've been outside, your body was meant to live on water. You were made that way. And guess what? Your soul was created to live on God. You need to understand that your soul can get thirsty. In fact, the most important part of who you are could be so thirsty right now. And if you don't have Jesus, you're thirsty in the deepest of ways and you may not even realize it. You're running after a million different things that can never quench your thirst when Jesus is the only one that can. Your soul can actually be thirsty. And the good news is Jesus is offering all of us thirsty souls the only water that can actually quench our thirst. Not only that, but Jesus teaches us here 
that He Himself is the living water. It's not that you simply come to Jesus and He gives you a drink of water. What happens is you come to Jesus and you get Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that your soul can get thirsty and will be thirsty because it was created to run on God and Jesus is God. You need Jesus. You need the resurrected, the crucified dead and resurrected from the dead Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. Not that idea of Jesus you have. Not that thing that you think is kind of cool at Christmas and Easter. No, I'm talking about the living Jesus. The one who floods your life with His own spirit. Listen, the resurrected Jesus is the very one that you're thirsty for. The only one that can complete you. The only one who can really tell you who you are. And you will chase down a million empty roads. You'll come to a thousand dead ends trying to find what only Jesus can give you because Jesus is the living water. Secondly, we need to look at the word come. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. This means that not only do you have to realize you're thirsty in the deepest of ways in your soul, not only do you have to admit that you need him, but then you need to come to him. You need to come to Jesus. The rich young ruler showed up to Jesus thirsty, admitted, I'm wanting more here, but he could not actually take the step of following Jesus. And what does the Bible mean by coming to him? Well, it means to turn away from everything else in your life. We say this at Three Circle Church often, your new life is going to cost you your old life. That's true. But it'll be the greatest exchange you've ever made in your life. And so Jesus says, not only do you have to admit you're thirsty and realize you're thirsty, but then you have to come to Him. Because that inner thirst will lead you, if you allow it, to a lot of wrong things. Your thirsty soul may have led you down a sexual road in your past that you now regret. And you were looking for something that that would never be able to give you. And when you look in the wrong places for the soul thirst-quenching waters that only Jesus can give you, it can be disastrous. Some of you joining us today, you may have gone down the path of substance abuse. You thought that would be the thing. That's the thing, and it never does, right? It, it never fulfills the promise. And that's the thing about sin. It never fulfills the promise. So it can be enjoyable in the moment, but the, the disastrous consequences are sometimes more than we can even imagine. So what you have to do is you have to come to Jesus. And that soul thirst is going to lead you somewhere. It may lead you to a life of overeating and worshiping at the altar of food and drink. It may lead you to, to broken relationships because you thought that people could do for you what only God can. It can lead you to broken marriage because you put on your spouse the weight of being living water when only God could do that for you. I don't know what it is that you've allowed your soul thirst to lead you to, but if it's not Jesus, it will all let you down. Jesus says, realize you're thirsty and then come to Him. The last word Jesus uses here that we need to explore is the word drink. Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, that's for all of us. That's you, wherever you are today. If you're thirsty, Jesus says, don't follow that thirst to the wrong place. It can be disastrous. No, instead, follow that inner soul thirst that we all have. Let it lead you to Jesus. And then when you get to Jesus, remember, rich young ruler came to Jesus and then he didn't, he didn't stay. Why? Because he didn't do the last part. Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. 
let him drink. Now, what does he mean here? Well, Jesus explains this throughout the Gospels. What Jesus means when he says to drink of him is he means believe in him. This is not water that you have to dig the well for. You do no work to get this. This is not something that you're proud of. You can't be proud of your salvation. If you come to Jesus I, as a Christian, I can't boast about my salvation in and of myself. I did nothing to earn it. I didn't dig the well to get the water. Jesus did that for me. The gift of God, the water of Jesus is that. It's a gift. It's a gift to you. You can't earn it. You can't manufacture it. You just have to drink it. And how do you drink it? You believe. You believe upon Jesus. You don't earn your way into Jesus. You don't work your way into Jesus. You believe upon Jesus. And He will change your life. He will change your behaviors. He'll change your desires. He'll change who you are. He'll give you a new identity. But it starts with thirsty, come and drink. And so many of you, so many of you have heard sermons, radio broadcasts, read books, had conversations with people that brought you to Jesus. You were right next to Him. The truth was before you. The gospel was before you. And you didn't believe. You, you didn't drink. The glass was sitting in front of you. The pitcher had already been poured. All you had to do was drink. But so many of us have turned away. Can I tell you today, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this right now, Jesus is offering you a drink. If you're thirsty, don't just come to Him. Drink. Believe. Don't just listen to another sermon. Don't just watch another broadcast. Don't just start a new series with Three Circle Church today and not drink the water. Because a glass of water sitting on the table is going to do you no good if you're thirsty unless you drink it. So Jesus says, and what I consider a quintessential gospel presentation, by the way, it's the gospel. Need, our need, thirsty. Us turning to Him, come. And us believing in Him, drink. Thirst, come, drink. When you're really thirsty, there's nothing more satisfying than a big glass of really cold water, right? There's something very satisfying about it. But the problem with physical water and our physical bodies is that even after you drink the best, most cold, most delicious, most refreshing water that you've ever had, you're going to get thirsty again. Your body's going to need more water. And so physical water and our physical bodies interact in a way that you're going to have to keep drinking water over and over again. Well, Jesus didn't just talk about rivers and water at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus also talked about himself being living water and being like a river in our lives in John chapter 4. There was this lady, this Samaritan woman, who met Jesus at a well. And as they sat there and talked, the Samaritan woman was a very sinful woman. She had lived a really, really rough life. And as Jesus talked to her at the well, she was amazed because a male Jewish rabbi normally wouldn't be in Samaria and he certainly wouldn't be talking to a woman who had a sinful past at a well. But Jesus did. He tended to break all of the cultural rules. And Jesus offered her what he offered at the Feast of Tabernacles and what he offers all of us today. The woman said, do you want me to get you a drink of water? And Jesus looked at her and said, lady, if you knew who I was, if you knew me, you would ask me for water and I would give you water and you would never thirst again. And there it is. 
What's the difference in Jesus? What's the difference in the river of Jesus water and the water that we drink every day? Well, Jesus quenches our thirst and we never thirst again. Our bodies get thirsty, but our souls, our hearts, our spirit, we never have to be thirsty again because we have the ever-flowing river of Jesus in our lives. And so today, the choice is clear. So many of us are thirsty. So many of you watching right now, you're so thirsty, you've tried a million different things. You've gone a million different directions. As C.S. Lewis so aptly put it, we settle for too small in our lives. We have the living water in front of us, and yet we go after all of these other things that can never satisfy. But Jesus promises you drink of him, you never thirst again. Aren't you tired of chasing? Aren't you tired of running after things that are dead ends? Why don't today you come to Jesus? He's asking you the way he asked the people in Jerusalem. It's the same invitation. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Then come. Come to Him. Don't go the other roads. Don't go the other directions. They lead to nowhere. They're never going to be enough. The money will never be enough. The sex will never be enough. The drugs will never be enough. Uh, the, the fame will never be enough. Whatever the thing is in your life, it will never be enough. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the only one who can tell you who you really are, who can give you a new identity, who can give you a new heart, who can change your life, who can quench your thirst. Are you thirsty? Come to Him. And don't just come to Him, but drink. Drink. Turn the glass up of the living river water of Jesus. Let the river flow into you, into your soul, into your heart, into the very depths of who you are. Let your sin be washed away. Let your life be changed. Let your heart come alive in Jesus. Drink of His water and never thirst again. Come to Jesus. Are you thirsty? Come and drink of the only river that will never run dry.